I want you to think about a yellow umbrella, all right? Has anyone ever seen the TV show, How I Met Your Mother? Come on, raise your hands, but like a T-Rex, short arms. All right. So if you've seen the TV show, How I Met Your Mother, you might know that a yellow umbrella means that something is more than a coincidence, all right? So in this show, the main character is eventually going to fall in love with his wife, and until that happens, they cross paths multiple times, and they even trade this yellow umbrella without knowing it. And at the very end of the show, there's this big dramatic scene where our main character sees his future wife holding that yellow umbrella. They fall in love. The end. All right? I just saved you nine seasons and a really stupid ending. You're welcome. (laughs) The reason I'm mentioning that is because sometimes I wish that God used a yellow umbrella to show us where he was doing something in the background. Right? In the show, a yellow umbrella means something happened in the background here. And in our lives... It'd be pretty cool if God used a yellow umbrella to show us that he was doing something, that he was working in the background. Like, what if we're stuck in traffic? And not Columbus, Indiana traffic, but real traffic. Let's call it indie traffic. You know, you're stuck, you're in a standstill, and you're frustrated because they won't move. But then you see a yellow umbrella, and you know, okay, maybe I don't know what, but but God's working in the background. And what if you knew that the reason you were in standstill traffic was to give an EMT time to save a kid's life? Oh, okay. I'll stop whining for a minute. I'll just sit here. That's cool. A yellow umbrella meant God was working in the background. Or what if you're in the middle of a breakup, right? And even if that might feel devastating, you see a yellow umbrella and then you realize, okay, maybe I don't know everything, but what if this is God saving me or protecting me from something else? God's working in the background. Or you're at work and maybe your boss is normally great, but she's having a really rough week and you don't know what's going on and you're frustrated. But when you see her walk through the door, yellow umbrella. Okay, maybe you don't know what's going on, but okay, God said he's working in the background. All right. Like, it would help me if I saw a yellow umbrella that told me God was working in the background. And yet, God never promises to use yellow umbrellas. He is not contractually obligated to do so. I just think it's a cool idea. What I know, yellow umbrellas aside is that even if we don't have a sign that says it, God is working in the background. Like sometimes we say that God works in mysterious ways, and that's true. But also God works in really ordinary or seemingly ordinary ways also. Our main idea for the day, just kind of giving you a big plot twist here, uh, is that God works in the background. And the reason I'm telling you this now is because I want us to have this in our mind, that God works in the background. We see this throughout the whole book of Ruth. We started talking about this last week, and here's a recap of the story so far. Uh, Naomi and her husband go to a foreign land with their sons. Their sons get married. Then Naomi's husband dies. Then their sons die. And then one of the daughter-in-laws leaves. And our only remaining characters in the story still alive are Naomi, the mother, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. All right? The idea from that is that one decision can change your life. And they make a decision to go back to the land of Israel, to return to God and to go there. And so we have our story ending last week with Naomi and Ruth moving back to Israel, going to follow God, and they're in really bad shape. This is something we didn't talk as much about last week, but I want you to understand that Naomi and Ruth are, uh, culturally speaking, up the creek without a paddle. Like, they are in trouble here. Not... How's it going to go for them? But, like, I need you to understand, they're in bad shape. 
See, we're talking about a culture back then where they don't have land that they have access to. They don't have money. They don't have stable jobs. Unless something happens, their most likely prospects as two widows are prostitution, slavery, or starvation. Like, that's what it's looking like for Ruth and Naomi unless something happens. And I'm telling you now, yes, something happens. I want you to keep it in mind as we go through the story. God works in the background. All right? So that's where we're picking our story up. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Hey, I want to go scavenge the leftovers. And Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, this is our yellow umbrella right here. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. All right? There's not a coincidence, and I had a deceased just to remind you. All right, that's her father-in-law, Elimelech. That is a yellow umbrella. That, this is not a coincidence. God is working in the background. Now, who's Boaz and what's going on here? Well, Boaz is a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem who was related to Ruth and Naomi through Elimelech. He's someone who followed God and he was generous to the poor. He allowed people to pick up the leftover grain. Ruth's not the only one who gleaned or scavenged there. He allowed this. He was kind. And none of this is coincidence. And our story continues and Boaz takes an interest in Ruth. And that doesn't necessarily mean romantic interest, but he asked his workers, hey, she's new. Who's she? What's going on here? They said, oh, that's Ruth. She's the Moabite. She came back here with her mother-in-law after their families died. Uh, She's a hard worker. That's about all we know. Okay. So Boaz gets to know Ruth and he talks to her and he's really, really kind to her. He explains that she doesn't need to move on to other fields. She can stay and continue to glean and harvest there. And he gives her water which to us is kind of like a common courtesy thing. But remember, this is a desert in the ancient Near East. This is a big deal that he's giving her access to water. And then he even promises her protection from his workers. He tells them to treat her kindly, and basically she's prevented from being harassed there. So Boaz is really kind to Ruth. And she's shocked and surprised by it and says, why? And he explains that it's because he's seen her loyalty to Naomi, and that stuck with him. And so Ruth says, okay, thanks, goes home, tells Naomi, and Naomi is thrilled by all of this. We'll get to why in a minute. Now, one day, Naomi decides it's time for Ruth to get married. One of the reasons for it is it's a lot better for their economic situation. Now, we might be hearing this like, okay, we don't have a lot of money, we need some help, the solution is get married? And back then, yes, all right? We we don't live in this world today. Modern 21st century America is very different than the world and culture that Ruth takes place in. So that's good to know. Uh, We also need to know that even if it sounds a little insensitive to say, okay, time to move on, time to get married. Their alternatives that they're looking at here are prostitution, starvation, slavery, death. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to take a time out. All right, time out. Something that is a little overkill in recreational volleyball, maybe a little overkill in a sermon, but necessary here. See, the story's about to get weird, and I'm calling a timeout to let you know that. Now, weird does not mean inappropriate, it does not mean immoral, but very different 
than what is culturally normal for us. So let's acknowledge that, but also remember that what we live in today, our world is very different than this. So let's be careful before we take this story and be like, oh, that's wrong. Maybe weird, maybe different, but let's just acknowledge that. All right, time out out. Here's where it gets weird. Uh, it's time for Ruth to pick a husband. Remember, I told you it's different. So they do not have the bachelor, all right? That's not an option, but we have a bachelor and that's Boaz. Remember the generous rich man who was related to them through Ruth's deceased father-in-law? Are you uncomfortable with the idea that Ruth might marry a man she met at a family reunion? Because I am. It's uh, where I'm from. We make fun of a state for this. Up here, I think people make fun of Kentucky. We make fun of Sweet Home Alabama. Sweet Home Alabama. Carry me home to marry my kin. Uh, yeah, let's call this out, okay? This is weird. And I also want to remind you of something. The alternatives here are prostitution, starvation, slavery, death. And yet God might use, in this case, he does use marriage as a way to prevent Ruth from falling into all of that. See, this is a time period where widows were cast aside. And so as odd as that is to us, this is something Naomi was aware of. It's actually why she was thrilled when she learned that Ruth just so happened to be working in the fields that belonged to Boaz. So Naomi tells Ruth, hey, go take a bath, put on some nice clothes, wear some perfume. Basically, she's told, stop dressing like a widow and show that you're available for marriage. And so Ruth goes to the threshing floor, which was a public place where Boaz and many workers would sleep. And she's told to go and lay down at Boaz's feet and offer herself in marriage. Is this sexual or immoral? No. Is this very bold? Yes. Uh, how would you feel if you woke up and next to your feet was someone says, hey, do you want to get married? <laughs> weird. Really weird if you live in a house with locked doors. This was a public place, but, but still. And so Boaz wakes up to Ruth laying at his feet and Ruth proposing, which is huge. Again, because this is the person who has been kind to her and has been providing food for her. And so if she's rejected, I mean, the outcomes could range from death to being in a really bad spot. If he says yes, she could be permanently provided for. So she gets down on one knee, pops the... Oh, no, she, she doesn't. Uh, remember, ancient Near East, it's very different than our world. This is how Ruth proposes. We see it in Ruth 3.9. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. That's not how I asked my wife to marry me. How did you guys ask? Maybe one of us did this wrong. Uh, no, there's no, will you marry me? There's no love or I love you. Have you guys seen love in this at all? I appreciate that. I also haven't seen love in this at all. I have a question for you. I'm going to sing it so you remember it. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Uh... Why would I say that? What's, what's the point of that? Not that song, but that comment here. 
Well, it's because we don't see love as this ultimate American experience in this at all. See, people have gotten married for a very long time, and sometimes romantic love has had nothing to do with it. We don't see a romantic love in this, and that's okay. What we do see is God working in the background. And to understand Ruth's proposal, to understand what's going on here, to understand this, we need to understand that, the idea of a family redeemer. What does it mean to redeem? Well, to redeem means to buy out. It's different than redeeming a coupon, even if that's how we often use the phrase, but props to any serious couponers. Like, I've seen you guys with your CVS receipts. I don't know why they're that long. It's like a scarf of savings for the winter. But to redeem doesn't mean in reference to a coupon. Actually, redeem, in this case, is talking about slavery, all right? Now, when I say slavery, you might think about the sinful, wrong, racist slavery that we experienced way too recently here in the United States. I understand why we think that, but let's set that aside. That's not the slavery we're talking about here, okay? Ancient Near East, uh, galaxy far, far away, but real. So very, very different cultural world, but slavery was different. In this context, it's non-racial, non-permanent, but still very difficult situation for Israelites. See, when Israelites went into extreme debt, they could temporarily sell their family's land and then work as slaves for a set period of time until their debt would be paid off. And then every 50 years, even if the debt hadn't been paid, there was this year of jubilee where all slaves would be free and all land would be returned to its original owners. But until that time, Israelites would remain without land and in slavery unless they were redeemed, unless they were bought out. See, someone could redeem them. Someone could buy their debt out to give them their freedom. Well, who could do that? And that's where we get this idea of a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer. This is someone who would pay the debt of a family member who couldn't pay it themselves. All right? Oversimplifying this, but if Bobby owed $1,000 and couldn't pay it, Joe, his family member, if they're close enough, if they're closely enough related, could pay that $1,000 to prevent Bobby from having to go into slavery. All right? Oversimplified, and that's a very small dollar amount for this kind of a situation, but that's what a kinsman redeemer is. It's someone who was invited to. They had the right to pay debts of their family members to prevent them from going into slavery or losing their land. And this was done at great financial cost. A kinsman redeemer didn't have to do this, but they had the right, if they chose to, to rescue someone from debt and slavery. So, back to Boaz and Ruth and our weird proposal. Ruth proposes by telling Boaz that he can be her kinsman redeemer. He has a right, if he chooses to accept it, to redeem her and her family's land and their family's future by paying a debt that she couldn't pay in order to rescue her from debt and slavery. Again, remember, if this doesn't happen, what we're looking at is poverty, prostitution, slavery, starvation. Or she could be redeemed. So Ruth proposes and Boaz says, yes, maybe. Let me get back to you on that. How would you feel if you proposed and you got a, let me get back to you after a business day? Probably not great. But that's what happens here. So Boaz says, let me get back to you. Take some food. Go home to your mother-in-law. I'll get back with you tomorrow. 
And the reason for this is because there was another person who could be a kinsman redeemer. We never get his name. Let's call him... Make an eye contact here. People are avoiding eye contact. We'll call him Bobby. We'll keep it generic. Fine. Uh, And so we'll call him Nameless Bobby. Nameless Bobby also has a right, if he chooses to accept it, to become the kinsman redeemer. Boaz knows this, so he goes to Nameless Bob and goes, hey, Naomi has to sell her land. Do you want to buy the land? Bobby's like, sure. Wait, is there any fine print? Yeah, man. It comes with a mother-in-law. Everybody loves those. Do you want one? Oh, oh, and also it comes with Ruth. You have to marry her, and then you need to have a baby with her, and then you need to give that land back to Ruth's kid when he grows up. Um, But do you want to buy the land? (laughs) No, thanks though. I'm good. And so once Nameless Bobby has declined the opportunity to become the kinsman redeemer, at that point, Boaz says, okay, then I will be the kinsman redeemer and publicly and contractually agrees to pay the debts that Ruth's family owes, which then gets them back their land and also brings us kind of to the ending of our story. But before we read the last part, I want to remind you how this story started. Naomi's family left the promised land, even though they shouldn't have. Her husband died. Her sons died. One of her daughters-in-laws leaves her, and she has nothing. And Ruth, a foreigner who was not raised to worship God, was loyal to Naomi and loyal to God. And we see God working in the background. Because it just so happened that when Ruth and Naomi went back, that she found herself working in a field that belonged to someone who could be her kinsman redeemer. Right? There's yellow umbrellas all through this story. And God's been working in the background leading up to our story's ending right here. So we read the last bit of Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel and may he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. And the neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. God has been working in the background. Throughout this story, we see God both intervene in a specific family's life, and he rescues Ruth and Naomi. But we also see that God has been working on a bigger picture as well, part of the plan to bring Jesus to earth to redeem us. Because it was from Ruth's redeemed family line that we get Obed, then Jesse, then David. That David is King David, the nation of Israel. He was an imperfect king, but from his descendants, we actually see Jesus come to earth, fully God, but lives as fully man, through this genealogical tree as part of a plan to rescue us. Do we worship Jesus as king? We'll sing songs about he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's true. And God is holy and he's worth praising and acknowledging as God and different than us. And he also became like us in order to pay a debt we couldn't pay to become not just our king, but our kinsman redeemer. All right? See, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. There's a lot of parallels in the story with Ruth and Boaz and us and Jesus. See, 
Remember, to redeem means to buy out. Ruth found herself in dire straits. She owed a debt that she could never pay. She needed to be rescued. And Boaz was her kinsman redeemer. He paid the debt she couldn't pay to redeem her, to rescue her. We find ourselves in dire straits too. We need to be rescued from the debt that our sins cause us. And we can't pay that debt on our own. And Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He pays a debt that we can't pay in order to redeem or to rescue us. Here's how this happens. We believe that there's a holy, perfect God who created the world. Because he created it, he gets to establish how it should function. And God has a standard. And here's us. We don't meet God's standard. It's just the honest, hard truth of it. We are separated from God by something called sin. And because of that sin, we owe a debt to God. And our sin means we can't pay it on our own. Well, God knew this. He's always had a plan for it. The story of Ruth is a part of this plan where God sends Jesus to come down to earth to live both as fully God and fully man, and then actually to take our debt and to pay for it himself. This idea of a debt, I want you to think about owing $100 million. And I could never pay that. Chances are you couldn't either. And that's the kind of debt we owe to God, one that we can't pay on our own. But what Jesus did is he lived without any sin, and then he died a death he didn't deserve. When he did that, he took our debt on himself and then paid it on the cross. Our response to all of this is to believe that Jesus took our debt and paid it on the cross, dying a death he didn't deserve, so that we could be forgiven for our sins. It's a big deal. It's serious. Bigger than $100 million being taken and away from us. Like our sin debt is paid for by Jesus on a cross. A perfect God had a perfect standard that we couldn't meet and Jesus did. Paying our debt. And when he did on the cross, we are redeemed. We are bought out. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Like Boaz paid Ruth's debt, Jesus pays ours. And our debts are massive and we can't get to God on our own. And Jesus knew that, and he came and he took care of it. He redeems us. And our response to all of this is one of celebration and worship and joy and a forever united with God. Because we were redeemed, because our debt was paid, we get to be brought in to the family. Just as Ruth and Naomi were brought into the family, we are brought into God's family. So, what do we do with that? Because that's part of the point of Ruth is that we would know that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Well, our response to that first, if we haven't done so already, and it's to admit that we need to be redeemed. It's to admit and to acknowledge that on our own, we are separated from God by our sin. We don't earn our way to God. We don't achieve our way. We don't merit our way. We believe that God did what we couldn't do. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's this idea that we don't earn it, but Jesus willingly pays our debt. And our response to that is to admit that we have the debt, and then to be grateful that Jesus paid it, believing that he's God, that he died on a cross as payment for our sins. That when Jesus died on a cross, he redeemed us from our debt to sin, and that we're made right with God. If you have questions about that, my honest prayer is that it sticks in your head, and you can't stop thinking about it. 
And I'm not saying that vindictively or playfully, but honestly. Because more than anything else, in how we respond to Jesus and the idea of we are redeemed, and that's what's most important. If you want to talk about that or you have questions, then some friends and I'll be down front afterwards. We'd love to chat. And if you have had that happen, where your trust is in Jesus, that means you have been redeemed, then you've gone from separated from God to permanently united with him, fully brought into the family. Well, then our lives should be lives of joy and peace and hope and a lot of things that we say but we don't always experience. But the reason that we can experience those things is because we know that we had a giant, giant debt that somebody paid for us. So that's part of why we sing and we worship. It's because we're grateful. Because we know that we owed a debt we couldn't pay, and it was paid for us. And so our response is one of joy and gratitude and, truthfully, allegiance. Throughout the Christian faith and the history of our faith, following Jesus is very much about who our allegiance is to. Some history for you you may have never asked for, but I would love to share is that during the days of the early church, Christians and others were persecuted and asked to declare that Caesar is Lord. This idea that Caesar, the ruler of the Roman government, is Lord, that he's ultimate. They would be told to pay taxes or burn incense, but also to publicly declare that Caesar is Lord. And the Christian response to it was humble and respectful, but different. And it's the phrase that Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, he is also Lord. We acknowledge him as Lord, as king, as ultimate. And so we live differently because of it. One of the ways we do that is through baptism. Um, Jesus told his followers to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so we baptize people, and as I mentioned earlier, like we celebrate here. But just to be really clear... We celebrate when somebody comes out of the water, but it's not because somebody physically came out of the water. Like, we've never lost anybody doing that. That that was not the concern. We celebrate when someone comes out of the water because we know what it means to be redeemed. It's this idea of somebody having that massive debt paid for. So we celebrate and we yell and we cheer and we're loud, but it's not just about the person getting baptized. It's much more about Jesus and knowing that he redeems us And that he's redeemed that person. So we live differently and we celebrate baptism. And we do it with a lot of gratitude and joy. We also observe something called the Lord's Supper. This is a practice that Jesus instituted before his death. And he instructs his followers to do this in remembrance of him. So we have these little cups. And in them is a wafer and in them is some juice. This is something that Jesus instituted as a symbol of what would happen to him on the cross. Because it was actually on the cross that we were rescued, that we were redeemed. Think about it. What we were redeemed from is huge. That's the weight, that's the debt that our sin, the weight and debt of our sin. This is something that we do with joy and with gratitude, but also something we do seriously. So here's how we're going to do this today. If you haven't already, what I want us to do is go ahead and take it out and get ready. But I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think about the debt that you owe God because of your sin. And I'm up on stage, but I'm going to be doing the same thing. And then I want you to thank God for redeeming you, to thank God for rescuing you from the debt you couldn't pay. So go ahead and take a moment to yourself and to God, and then I'll close us out in prayer.
King Jesus, we worship you. We worship you as King. We worship you as Lord. We declare that you're ultimate, that you are holy, that you are perfect. There's no one like you. We also worship you as our Redeemer. Like We acknowledge you and we praise you, not just as a holy and perfect distant God, but as our kinsman Redeemer. That you would, on a cross, with your life, at great cost, pay a debt we couldn't pay to rescue us from what we deserve. God, our response to this is one of gratitude. Because we could not earn our way to you. We didn't have a shot. But you came and got us. And you were working in the background. You're working in the background in Ruth's life, but also in all of history. Bringing about your plan to, on a cross, rescue people that you would then call family. God, we were far, far away from you, separated by our sin. And you said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, so we say, thank you. And we respond to you with worship and with joy and with gratitude, worshiping you as our kinsman, redeemer, and the king of kings. We love you, King Jesus. Amen.